Hey, Side Door listeners, we are officially between seasons right now, but we have a little bonus for you. Last summer, we reported a story about skateboarding, one of my favorites, actually. And this summer, for the first time ever, skateboarding is an Olympic sport. So we wanted to play that skateboarding story for you now because, speaking for myself, I think it's always more exciting to watch a competition when you know the story behind it. And this is a good story. But before we play that episode, I wanted to get a little Olympic preview from one of the experts about what we can expect to see at the Games. And she told me, I don't know what, I don't really know what's going to happen. You know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Jane Rogers is a curator at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. And I kind of specialize in action, extreme sports, snowboarding, skateboarding, surfing, that kind of thing. So, okay, this summer, skateboarding will be broadcast as an Olympic sport for the first time ever. Yes. Why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because, you know, the Olympics validates, kind of validates sport. So, you know, if this is going to be a competitive sport, being in the Olympics is where you want to be. But not everyone is happy about skateboarding joining the Olympics. And Jane says that has to do with how the sport began. I mean, people used to skateboard to get away from the, from the organized sports, from the coaches, from the parents yelling in the stands, you know. When skateboarding gained popularity in the 1970s, it was counterculture. You didn't need teams or uniforms or anyone's approval. You just needed a board, and you could head to the skate park, or just a parking lot, and pop an ollie or grind some gnarly rails. You could do it anywhere. And, you know, it didn't cost that much. And you got away from your parents and that kind of thing. So (laughs) Skateboarding got a reputation for drawing loners and rebels, the kids who weren't interested in organized sports. So it seems like historically skateboarding as a sport is sort of more about freedom of expression and community than about competition, right? Correct. But over time, skateboarding has grown and matured. Older skaters have become ambassadors for the sport. There are more opportunities to compete and more sponsorship money in play. It's becoming a professional competitive sport. And the Olympics is sort of imposing structure on something that has typically been... Unstructured. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, correct. So the Olympics has provoked this conversation in the skating community about, is skateboarding a lifestyle or a sport? Which one is it? <laughs> it's, a big, it's a big thing in the community. But one thing is certain. More people will be watching skateboarding this summer than ever before. The Olympics will raise the international profile of skating, but also skaters, both men and women. And Jane says this is a big deal because even though women have always been involved in the sport, they have not gotten the recognition. And I think, you know, in a male-dominated sport where it's mostly geared towards young males, it's hard to be a female amongst all that. And um, I think the X Games pay equity boycott, I think it was kind of almost like a line in the sand. The story of that line in the sand and the women who drew it is the story we have for you right now. And I'm particularly excited to share it because one of those women is none other than the U.S. women's Olympic team coach in Tokyo right now. Let's have a listen. (laughs) 
This is Side Door, a podcast from the Smithsonian with support from PRX. I'm Lizzie Peabody. Mimi Noop moved a lot as a kid. And wherever she landed, she found a group of friends who all shared at least one thing. They loved skateboarding. And in the 1980s, that meant Mimi hung out with a lot of boys. I didn't have any other girlfriends that skated. Um, so yeah, I just had my friends that were boys were who I skated with from that time all the way until my early 20s, I would say. After college, Mimi moved to the Virgin Islands to work as a bartender, as one does. And one day, as she cleaned glasses and wiped down the bar top, something on TV caught her eye. I glanced up and saw a women's skateboarding contest on the TV, which you didn't really see skateboarding in general on TV back then, so that was a big deal to begin with. And then I realized they were women, and I'm like, wait a second. And I'm like, shoot, I missed the boat. Like, I should have I tried that. I didn't know you could do that. I, I never saw really any other girls or women either in any of the magazines or videos, so I, it never clicked for me that that was an option. Oh, you felt like you're, you'd already missed your opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I was like 22 years old, so I was like, well, oh well, you know, I blew it. <laughs> over the I hill. Get into that. Yeah, I'm over the hill. Too bad I didn't get into that, you know, 10 years ago. But um, yeah, it just kind of planted the seed that that was out there, but I had no idea that I could do that. When mixing margaritas got old, Mimi moved to San Diego, which is a bit of a skateboarding mecca. Hanging around San Diego's skate parks, Newt found a new crew. But this time, something was different. There were girls there. And one of them was a skateboarder named Carabeth Burnside. And for those of us who weren't women skateboarding buffs in the early 2000s, bumping into Carabeth Burnside at a skate park is a bit like practicing free throws at your local rec center and meeting Michael Jordan. And one thing led to another, and she's like, you should enter these contests with us. Which is kind of like MJ asking you if you want to join the Chicago Bulls. The only answer is, heck yes. And that's how Noop came to enter her first skateboarding competition. But first, she had to learn one important thing called dropping in. Dropping in is one of the first things you learn as a skater if you're skating ramps or transition. Because it's just a way for you to begin your run. Here's how it works. You climb up to a platform at one end of a tall U-shaped ramp. So you walk up and you put your board on the side of the ramp. With your back foot, you pin the board on the edge of the ramp so it sticks out like a diving board. And then, with your other foot, you step onto the front of the skateboard. And lean your weight forward. And then you fall until the ramp catches the board's wheels under you. You definitely have to commit, and, you know, a lot of people will half commit, so then they slip back. Landing on their back or their butt. And a lot of people will overcommit, and then they slam forward. Landing on their face. That's one of the scariest things, I would say. Once you figure out how to get over that, then you can kind of do anything. So having just learned to drop in, Noop enters the same competition she saw two years earlier on TV. Which is pretty crazy. I was horrified. For me, it was survival mode of just <laughs> go and, like, participate and get out of there. I definitely got last place. Like, there was no question in my mind. <laughs> I was just excited to be there. Mimi actually didn't finish in last place. She came in fifth place out of seven skateboarders. And she got paid. I think I won, like, $100, and I've n- never been more excited about a check before. I just was like, wow, this is 
money that came to me for riding my skateboard. Like, how cool is that? Now, technically, Mimi was a professional skateboarder. And she was just getting started. So this time on Side Door, we tell the story of how Mimi Noop, alongside her friend Carabeth Burnside, forged an alliance to pick a fight with a billion-dollar industry that refused to see their value as skateboarders and as women. All that after a quick break. Today Explained is a daily news show from Vox. Every weekday, hosts Sean Ramosferum and Noel King break down one major story and provide the context you need to wrap your head around the news. From tech to politics, from climate change to the economy, and even a sprinkle of pop culture, Today Explained has got you covered. I think you're going to like what you hear. Follow Today Explained wherever you listen. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. It's the dawn of a new age, and your perception of sports is about to change. No bats, no balls, no sticks, no boundaries. This This is how ESPN heralded a new era of sports. On June 24th, 1995, the sports broadcaster debuted their brand new sports festival in the most extreme place you can imagine, Newport, Rhode Island. From this day forward, the world and sports will never be the same. These are the Extreme Games. Kick off your boat shoes because it's time for the Extreme Games! But you probably know them as the X Games. This series of radical sporting events happened in cities from Rhode Island to Maine. Tim Reed is from Newport, and he remembers the energy these games brought to the region. Windsurfing was at one location, wakeboarding was at another. They had mountain biking up in New Hampshire or Vermont, I can't remember which one. So it was like... A lot of satellite venues, but then... Reed knows a thing or two about the X Games, because today he's the vice president of the X Games. Other sports from the first games included street luge, rollerblading, and something called sky surfing. This is a great round for Troy Hartman, finishing with the row game. And it all started with the incredible Invisible Man. And I think that was the whole conceit early on was there's all these kind of disparate adventure, extreme sports that are out there. Let's try to bring them all together, create the Olympics of action sports or extreme sports and kind of see where it goes. Since the X Games were so new in its first few years, organizers kind of just figured it out as they went. Here's Chris Stepak, the guy in charge of the X Games back then. Those first couple of years in Rhode Island, we were all just innocent and we were just trying to figure it all out, start a brand and The athletes who competed in those sports were uh, very gifted, and they were really just waiting for a platform. And the X Games turned out to be the perfect platform. 
By the late 1990s, the X Games had largely congealed into the games we know today. ESPN relentlessly promoted its biggest stars, and a handful of male skateboarders, like Tony Hawk, became global icons. What a schitterend toetje op the slagroom geeft Tony Hawk hier weg. This generated a ton of money for the X Games and the athletes they showcased. But while the men cashed in, the women didn't. I asked Betsy Gordon about this. She's a skateboard curator at the National Museum of the American Indian and unofficial Smithsonian skateboarding historian. And she said to understand why this might be, you have to take a look back to how skateboarding evolved. After all, it's a pretty new sport. It's really interesting to me because the first commercially available skateboards were in the 60s. And if you look at those advertisements in magazines, they always show girls and boys skating. And in the 70s, um, as skating started growing up and they started having skateboard competition, lots of girls skated. This is right around the time Carabeth Burnside started skating. You might remember her as the Michael Jordan of women's skateboarding. When she was a kid, there were contests for girls, but after a couple years, they got canceled. And the only thing that was out there for me was to skate with the amateur boys. So that meant, like, you know, the ones like Tony Hawk did. Without contests, not many girls built reputations as star skaters. So skate magazines didn't pay much attention. In the 80s, with the dawn of more mass skate media, magazines, somehow girls just weren't getting in there, weren't getting the coverage. For the most part, the only women you'd see in skateboarding magazines, well, they sure weren't skateboarders. Well, in terms of advertising, they were showing models and models that didn't have a lot of clothes on for the most part. So it was very highly sexualized. So I think it was very hard for women who skated, to see themselves reflected in media, but also to see themselves where other skaters skated. And since female skaters weren't shown in movies and magazines, sponsors didn't support them. And since they didn't get sponsor money, it was hard to make a living. Well, I wanted to be a pro skateboarder, but even if I'm on a team and the company likes me, if the dudes that skate are complaining because they have a girl on the team and they're giving product, but oh, shoot, if we start paying you, those guys are going to be bombed and complaining, you know? Yeah. Even if a company wanted to sponsor a female skateboarder, they might get pushback from male skateboarders. So in the early 1990s, Burnside was one of the few pro-female skateboarders who had a corporate sponsor. Vans, one of the biggest names in skateboarding apparel, sponsored her to the tune of $50 a month. So I started entering contest pro and skating with the guys, but it didn't matter. Like, I couldn't ever be good enough. Like, I thought I had, like, really good tricks, and I did, but it's like you're a girl, and that's just the way it is. It was so hard making a living in skateboarding as a woman that Burnside had to go pro in a second sport to support herself. Yeah, I started snowboarding because of I couldn't do what I wanted to do in skateboarding, you know? It just was really hard. I lived near Tahoe, and I went, and there was all these girls' contests, and I was like, holy shit, they're winning that much money? I'm like, I gotta get good at this. So she did, and she became one of the best. In the 1998 Winter X Games, Burnside finished first in halfpipe. She is the best women's first skateboarder in the world, and you're right. You see it included in her style in Superpipe. Nice backside alley-oop. Very nice. 
And for that gold medal, the X Games awarded her $10,000. And then my sponsor, like, doubled it. So that's 20 Gs. It was just like, okay, well, I'm winning big money snowboarding. I still wanted to skate, but I had to figure out a way to make money. Burnside was also a member of the first ever U.S. Olympic snowboarding team. And just think about that. Most people, if they need extra money, they become a bartender, a tutor, a waiter, or they weave their own potholders. You know, a typical part-time job. But Burnside, she went pro in a second sport. That's amazing. Then, in the late 90s, Vans made the Carabeth Burnside shoe. It was just the second shoe to be named after a female athlete in any sport. Meanwhile, Mimi Noop, Burnside's pal who we left back in San Diego, wondered if it was possible for any female skater who wasn't Carabeth Burnside to make a career in skateboarding. It became pretty clear pretty quick that there is a glass ceiling there. And, and I was seeing people that I looked up to that were the best in the world, like, not bring home very much money. And, um... But she kept grinding. Our next rider in is Mimi Noop. Her event was called the Vert, named after the ramp's tall vertical walls. And at the beginning of her competitive career, Mimi mostly finished in fourth or fifth, but over time, she'd occasionally crack the podium. Until after a while, she started to win. Noob says the contests made her better. I would more or less get ideas at the end of a contest, and then it was like fuel for me to work on certain things. Hot rod, look at that front side boneless. Yeah, maybe. I never saw her do that before. As she climbed the women's skateboarding ranks, one trick that Mimi perfected was something called a front side invert. Honestly, I've watched a bunch of skateboarding videos in the last few weeks, and this one is by far the easiest to explain. So you ride up the ramp, and you pivot on your front hand on the top of the ramp, and then the board goes over your head, and then you aim for where your planted hand is, and you push off the wall and then land where your planted hand is. So you plant your hand on the wall, you and your skateboard swivel around, and then land where your hand is planted. Exactly. So I'm almost picturing like a one-handed cartwheel, but sideways. Kind of like that. Yeah, and it's it's a little blind on the re-entry, so that's why it's a little scary. You you don't really know what's... It's kind of like you just have to commit and hope it works out, you know, the first couple times. <laughs> I'm seeing a theme here in what makes for great skateboarding. <laughs> commit and hope it works out is also kind of how Mimi approached her skateboarding career. And it did work out. In 2003, she was invited to the first X Games that featured women's skateboarding as a medaled event. It was in downtown Los Angeles. I was like, whoa, like this is what I used to watch on TV, you know, in high school or whatever. And yeah, so I was ecstatic to go and just participate. The X Games were held in the Staples Center. It's a huge multi-purpose arena shared by Kobe Bryant and his L.A. Lakers, the NBA's Clippers and Hockey's Kings. Here's X Games VP Tim Reed again. Hundreds of thousands of people coming out to the event. Oh, wow. It's a big gathering, music, events, downtown L.A. So at that point, I mean, again, it felt like the event had uh, definitely arrived and, you know, everyone was aware of it. And it was great. In those early years, it was, it felt validating. Like, it felt like, okay, like, you know, people were backing our skating because we were on this big stage. So at that first X Games, 
Was that the largest audience you had ever skated in front of? Honestly, at that time, I think, no. I remember the stands being pretty empty. Our contests in those years were like held before the doors were open a lot of times. So like there wouldn't even be people in the stands, like maybe your mom and dad or friends that you invited. But like, yeah, the public, they'd be like doors open at noon and then they'd have a contest at like 10 or 11 in the morning or like directly after the doors open. So no one's really in there. Why do they schedule you before the doors open? That's a question you should ask ESPN and those guys. I have no idea. I don't really know the specifics with what what Mimi was talking about, but we we tended to have the everything open all the time. X Games boss Chris Stepak. Our hours would be like you know 11 a.m. to to 8 p.m. And with skateboarding, you know, one of the disciplines was the vert ramp, and so there's only so many competitions we can put on the vert ramp during the course of the day. You want to put the competitions that you feel have the best opportunity to rate with an audience. And, you know, when you've got Tony Hawk on a vert ramp, that means men's skateboarding is going to get a good time slot. And not only were the female skaters relegated to a bad time slot, they weren't put on TV at all. So Mimi's family couldn't really share the moment with her. At the time, we kept being promised, like, TV coverage, like, you guys are going to be on TV this time, and then it would never happen. You know, my family's from the East Coast, and getting an invite the week before made it really tough for them to be able to come and support and and be a part of it, too. So we just felt overlooked a lot. And it's worth saying again, these are the world's best female skateboarders at the world's biggest skateboarding event. But they felt the X Games didn't respect them as professionals because they were women. In 2003, and 2004, and 2005 didn't look much better. In 2005, men's first place was 50 grand, and women's was two grand. Wow. Wow. That's 50. Five, zero thousand dollars for the men. Yes. 50, five, zero grand. Yeah. For context, the last place male skater earned $2,000 which is the same amount as the first-place female skater. (sighs) Mimi remembers this really frustrating story from one of her first X Games. There was a male skateboarder who attended the X Games but didn't compete. He just sat there and smoked cigarettes. So, like, he ended up getting two grand for doing nothing. And that's that's where it really became polarizing for us. And we're like, dude, this is not cool, you know? (laughs) Not cool. So heading into the 2005 X Games, Noob and Burnside made a plan to grab the attention of Stepak and the X Games organizers so they might finally get the equal treatment they deserved. Coming up after a quick break. Support for Smithsonian Side Door comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so you can get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything, CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it, Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash side door. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash side door. So... 
It's spring 2005, and the world's best female skateboarders are fed up with the X Games. Their gripes were numerous, and they were legit. If Carabeth Burnside was Martin Luther, here's the list she'd be nailing to ESPN's door. Number one, earlier notice on X Games invitations. Number two, some, any time on television. Three, most of all, prize money that was more than 4% the size of men's prizes. 4%. Things were unfair. But one fateful day, Mimi got a call from her mom. My mom went back to college. Well, she went to college in her 50s, and and Drew came in. He was one of the guest speakers. She's talking about Drew Mearns. He's a big-time sports agent. In a way, he's like the Carabeth Burnside of his field. For a period of 10 years, I represented every single winner of the New York City Marathon and the Boston Marathon. So Drew gave a presentation to Mimi's mom's class. And afterwards, she went up to him and said, Hey, can you help my daughter? You know, she's trying to be a professional skateboarder. And so that's how I met Drew. Originally, the meeting was about how Mimi could make money. And he, from the get-go, was like, who else is involved? How is your sport structured? He was just fascinated by how things worked. And, and Drew didn't know much about skateboarding, but he knew the business of sports. So he understood Mimi's problem as an athlete who was being undervalued. The men at the X Games were making $50,000 for first prize, and the women were getting 1000 or at the most $2,000. That seemed like it was back in my, uh, you know, 1960s or 1970s. So that's how it all started. Drew was in. So Noop and Burnside and the other female skateboarders headed into the 2005 X Games irritated. But this time, they had a plan. On the evening of August 3rd, the skaters were hanging in their hotel room talking things over. The first women's skateboarding event was scheduled to start the next day, and they decided not to show up. We actually didn't call it a boycott. We just decided not to show up. And so what we did is I said, look, just don't show up. And... Of course, the phone started ringing. I was getting calls like crazy because they were saying, Merns, we know you. What do you want? Is it you want money? You want this? No, we don't want anything. There were some pretty crazy voicemails left on Carabas' phone that morning. You know, get down here. You guys are done kind of thing. I just want to sit down with you after this event and talk about how we can bring the girls towards equal pay, you know, better situation, different events, whatever we want to do. It wasn't like we were like, pay us right now. It wasn't like that. We were like, we want a meeting. We want to have a voice in our own events. Like, there's some serious gaps here, and we want to be involved. And the exasperated X Games organizers said, let's do it. Like, if you guys can get the girls to show up, we'll give you a meeting. Yeah, yeah, okay, we'll do it. Just make sure the girls show up. And they did. So the women's street skaters showed up. They skated their event. The very next day, we had our our women's vert contest, and we showed up, skated. The X Games got their event, as promised, and the skaters waited for their call from the organizers. And then crickets. Crickets for almost a year after that. For a good chunk of the year, silence. And then, in June 2006, with the next X Games just a few weeks away, the organizers said, let's talk. For backup, Drew called around his sports agent circles and linked up with the head of the Women's Sports Foundation and asked her to come along as well. So the day of the meeting arrives. Everyone gathers in the ESPN boardroom in New York City. 
And Drew remembers someone from the X Games explaining why women's skateboarding didn't look good on TV. And he goes, well, you know, women, when they go off the vert ramp, they only go up two or three feet. They don't do the same kind of tricks as the boys. And, and that's the reason. So that's why nobody watches. We asked Steepak about that. And he said, yeah, sounds about right. I can definitely imagine somebody saying that. I've heard that many times. It could have been a producer, you know, who's responsible for shooting good television. For a long time, that was kind of the elephant in the room. The girls just hadn't gotten very good yet. But by 05 and 06, they had. To hear someone from the X Games say basically, well, their tricks aren't as good as the men's, isn't exactly the answer Drew's crew was looking for. But then the CEO of the Women's Sports Foundation asks, Well, why do you think that is? And that's where I think that the collective ESPN male-dominated X Games stuff made a mistake. He just said, Everybody knows that women don't want to try too hard to jump um, big things. They're afraid of getting hurt. What? For what it's worth, Steepak says he doesn't remember anyone saying that, and he doesn't believe anyone from ESPN would have said that in a meeting. I don't think somebody would say that they're afraid of getting hurt. That's just sheer ignorance. And if somebody had said that in a meeting setting with, with outside people, they would have gotten verbally reprimanded afterwards, I believe. Either way, for whatever reason, after the meeting, Drew's phone rang. It was John Skipper, a senior executive at ESPN, basically Steepak's boss, who all of a sudden was very interested in the changes requested by Mimi and Carabath. He asked them for a meeting at the upcoming X Games. John Skipper invited them to his luxury box at the Staples Center. Mimi remembers the meeting's tone being friendly. You know, he was a really nice guy. He was like, look, I'm sorry we didn't come through on this promise to you guys. Like, how can I help you, basically? And we asked for three things from him. We asked for an increase in prize money over a few years span and then equal purses. And we asked for increased media exposure television, photographers. Basically, they wanted equality. And then we, the third thing we asked for was we want to organize our own events. Essentially, the female skateboarding events felt like they were an afterthought to the X Games organizers. So the skateboarders would do it themselves. He said, well, what, what do you guys want the purse to be this year? You know, what's an amount we can come up with that everyone will be stoked on? And he said 10 grand for first or something. And um, and so I wrote 15 down on a piece of paper and like slid it to Carabath. And she was like, 15. And so we have a joke. He, he approved it. And we have a joke now. I'm like, dude, you owe me five grand. Like, I got you five grand that day. So like, because she won the next day. <laughs> Burnside took home 15 grand for winning at the 2006 X Games. Not equality, but it was a good first step. The prize money went up again the following year. And on October 27th, 2008, the X Games announced that men and women would earn equal prize money, not just in skateboarding, but in every sport. After years of no pay, low pay, and being dismissed, Carabeth Burnside and Mimi Noop earned equal pay for female skateboarders. And today, both are still working hard to make the sport better, in their own way. 
Carabeth Burnside, the two-sport star who won eight X Games medals over 14 years, coaches girls and boys in skateboarding and still skates herself in her free time. And as for Mimi Noop, well, she's now the coach of the first-ever U.S. women's Olympic skateboarding team. The sport was set to make its debut at the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo, but the games have been pushed back to the summer of 2021. We've all been on an emotional roller coaster, you know, with the schedule change, the pandemic. Mostly I feel for our skaters, the ones that are ranked really high right now at the top of their game. Like now they have to wait a whole nother year and hope they keep that position. But we're continuing to keep the culture of skateboarding solid and, um, yeah, just trying to enhance their experience with this whole thing. And together, along with Drew Mearns, they created the Action Sports Alliance to continue to empower and develop future generations of female skateboarders. And the Smithsonian's own Betsy Gordon says she's seen slow but steady growth in the skateboarding industry. It hasn't been until very, very recently that women have been getting sponsorships, shoes, boards, grip tape, wheels. Um, And, you know, it's shocking to me that it's taken that industry so long to kind of embrace young women and women skating. It's taken time, but today, skateboarding has become a fairer place for women. And even as the X Games did the right thing, Gordon says that there are still battles ahead for the next generation of female athletes. But unlike when Noop and Burnside were growing up, this generation can see it's been done before, and they know what's possible. That was the story we originally aired in summer 2020. And now it's 2021 and the moment is here. The Olympics are upon us. So back at the National Museum of American History, I asked Jane Rogers, how might the Olympics affect women's skateboarding in particular? Women's skateboarding is really kind of excelling right now. There's a lot of women skateboarding. So I think it's only going to get bigger with the, with the bigger audience. I think people are going to say, hey, I could do that. I mean, if I can, at, at you know, 55, get on a skateboard and glide down the street and not kill myself, you know, obviously I'm not going to be in the Olympics. <laughs> but, I mean, if you're a 12-year-old girl and you see these other young girls doing this sport, like, hey, why can't I try? I can go down to my local, you know, skate shop and get a skateboard and jump on. A lot more girls are going to see women skateboarding at a very high level. Yes. Right. I think it'll have a big impact. Anything that you would encourage our audience to look for at the Olympics? What are you most excited for? I'm most excited for the women's competition. I think that's going to be really, really heated. There's some amazing women skaters out there, so be sure to watch them. I will. Yeah. listening to an Olympic bonus edition of Side Door, a podcast from the Smithsonian with support from PRX. If you want to see some skateboards used by pioneering female skateboarders from the 1960s and 70s, they're at the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. And if you're not in town, check out the photos on our website, si.edu slash sidedoor. You can also follow us on social media at sidedoorpod. Big thanks to Mimi Noop, Carabeth Burnside, Jane Rogers, Tim Reed, 
Grace Coriel, Betsy Gordon, Chris Stepak, Sarah Axelson, and Patty Bafalco of the Women's Sports Foundation. And an extra special thanks to Drew Mearns. We have sad news to share that since the episode originally aired in 2020, Drew Mearns has died. It was an honor to be able to speak with him and hear him tell this story, and we could not have done it without him. This show was produced by Justin O'Neill, James Morrison, Natalie Boyd, Ann Kananen, Caitlin Schaefer, Jess Sadek, Lara Koch, Sharon Bryant, and Tammy O'Neill. Episode artwork is by Greg Fisk. Extra support comes from Jason and Genevieve at PRX. Our show is mixed by Tarek Fuda. Our theme song and other episode music are by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you want to sponsor our show, please email sponsorship at prx.org. I'm your host, Lizzie Peabody. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the Olympics. Thank you.